to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. He spent his career studying trauma and how to reduce the impact that traumatic experiences have on people. He's the author of the wildly popular book, The Body Keeps the Score. It's based on the idea that a lot of physical sensations and even health issues stem from traumatic experiences. Research shows about 70% of us will go through a traumatic incident at least once in our lives. And according to Dr. Vanderkolk, those traumatic experiences leave a lasting imprint on our bodies, and we might be affected in some surprising ways. People who have endured trauma often experience a variety of physical and mental health symptoms. In his book, he shares how research shows that trauma literally reshapes the brain and the body. As a result, many people who have been through traumatic experiences struggle to enjoy pleasure, have a hard time with self-control, engagement, and trust. Fortunately, there are some strategies that can help. Some of the things he talks about today are why some traditional treatment methods don't help people heal from PTSD, the types of treatments that can help, and the strategies for finding help when you need it. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist take. It's the part of the show where I'll share how you can apply Dr. Vanderkolk's strategies to your own life. So here's Dr. Bessel Vanderkolk on how the body keeps the score and what you can do about it. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Good to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. So I'd seen your book on the New York Times bestseller list for a very, very, very long time. Yeah, forever. I think I would be a permanent spot, yeah. yeah. Right? I bet you've been there for 100 years at this point, it looks like. Yeah. So congratulations on writing such a successful book. And it didn't just hit the bestseller list, but it stayed there. And then I think you made a comeback when your paperback came out during the pandemic, right? It has been so steadily there from the, pretty much steadily since the publisher. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. And so last year, I hadn't read it yet, but last year I was talking to Dr. Judson Brewer on our podcast and we were talking about unwinding anxiety. Right. And one of the things we were talking about is how sometimes our body responds to things that trigger our anxiety years later. And I told this story about how as a kid, I hated school. And so Sunday nights, the TV show, The Simpsons was on and the theme song would come on and it would trigger to me. It was almost time to go to bed. And then it was going to be Monday morning and it was school. And so to this day, I still get like a stomach flip-flop mm. when that TV show comes on. Yeah. And even though it's been a really long time since I've had to go to school, but when I was in the third grade, I would throw up before school. Like I hated it that much. And so to me, the that same song still triggers that memory for me. But it wasn't necessarily like, like nothing horrible happened at school. Like the building didn't catch on fire and I had a near-death experience, but I hated it. I hated everything about school. And so I tell this story on the podcast and then all of our listeners start emailing me and said, Amy, you need to read The Body Keeps the Score. <laughs> and they were absolutely right. And don't get me wrong. I'm a therapist. I've done a cognitive behavioral therapy with Plenty of people who have trauma over the years. But it doesn't work. However, 
I've learned so much from your book about why it did not work with a lot of clients. Can you talk a little bit about why it is that our body does keep the score and how that works? Because that's who we are. We are bodies and we have brains to keep our bodies alive. And you know, I just came back from the Serengeti for two, uh, for two weeks. I saw all these animals all around me and they were just like us. Um, and that's who we are. We just do the stuff that animals do to take care of themselves. And then we have this little mind on top of it all that cannot possibly contain all the complexities of our bodies. Like, you know, uh, uh, you know, cognition, you know, any, anybody who believes that reason makes a difference has not been, has not lived in America in the last few years. No. I, the, the notion you can talk people into being reasonable is so crazy. It's like, <laughs> that's not the rule. Right. Yeah. Um, so the, the question is, how can we recognize our patterns and how can we change our patterns not through understanding, knowing why you're screwed up doesn't make you less screwed up. Now you know why you're screwed up. And that's good to know. But then it's, the job starts of doing things differently. Uh, and maybe taking a different road to school or taking a course in some other place sometime. And so you can sort of um, weaken those, those emotional connections. Why do you think it's come taken this long for us to realize the mind-body connection? Like clearly in well, America, we're very <laughs> slow to adopt this idea. Darwin knew it and Pierre Genet knew it. Uh, Shakespeare knew it. So... Uh, just just because you didn't catch up to it doesn't mean that people (laughs) (laughs) American psychology is really weird they really haven't understood yet anything about the brain and how the brain works and so keep thinking oh if you understand things everything will be different and that's not how it is yeah Right. A lot of my training as a cognitive behavioral therapist was about, you know, you just, if you just talk about the traumatic things you've been through enough, then somehow you'll feel better. And no, you that's, know, Greg, it's, Freudian. that's what Freud said back. They, they hate Freud, but that's what Freud said. If you can just talk about it, everything will get better. Proved out not to be the case. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That a lot of people talk about their traumatic experiences and they're just so, um, they experience such stress in talking about it that, you get the statistics, in fact, on how many people end up dropping out of treatment sometimes when it's talk therapy because they just can't tolerate sitting there talking about their trauma. And why should they? Exactly. Yeah. That's a great question. Yeah. Misery over and over again. Like, that's not the idea. Yeah. And how many of us do you think are walking around with this issue of just being hyper aroused all the time because of some kind of trauma that we haven't addressed and that our nervous system remembers it? Probably most people have these conditioned emotional responses. Uh, it comes out, I think, in every relationship, intimate relationship people have with somebody is, uh, you know, that's what made COVID so hard, is that we all have our idiosyncrasies of having intense emotional reactions to the opening theme, The Simpsons. Like, how stupid is that? But you do. You know? <laughs> right, right. And And so... The reality is that if I live with you, I should not be playing The Simpsons while you're around. <laughs> Good. And if you could tell that to my family members, because I have a nephew that learned about this, so he likes to play it, you know, as a joke. Like, let's yeah. see what happens to Aunt Amy when well, we play this. <laughs> people have to them also. That's part of us as well. Yeah. yeah. 
But and then I think so many people too, they, they walk around like that and the symptoms come out in different ways, right? Sometimes people are irritable, they're angry. They Sometimes people struggle with social situations. Sometimes people act out, they get reckless. Yep. How do we... I, how do people finally come to that conclusion of, yeah, maybe it is trauma? Because I but, think so many people don't recognize it. It usually is, comes in behaviors. And, uh, you know, one thing about being 20, 20 years old is that you do all that stuff and your relationships aren't working out. And then by the time you're 30, you go like, hmm, I wonder why my relationship, it wasn't really just because I hang out with a bunch of adults. Maybe there was something about me that, also, it didn't make it work. And it, usually people get into treatment because um, things have gotten pretty bad. I think you need to be in pretty bad shape before you're willing to plunk the, the money down and start looking at yourself. So, uh, you know, people don't do it well. Everything is just fine. It's just going to therapy is generally a, a desperate move. Like, I cannot stand going on with my life anymore. And then you start talking about what everybody else is doing. And at some point, you start with if you have a good therapist understanding about so what are you doing what are your your reactions and what are your associations to the simpsons and how can you take care of that little kid who was so frightened to go to school right right and in your book you describe lots of different ways of working through trauma and some are things like yoga which like we've known for a long time, yoga is helpful, but you really get into the nitty gritty of why it's so helpful. And that if somebody's experienced trauma, sometimes going to yoga reduces a lot of the symptoms that maybe we wouldn't even recognize it would reduce. What's the magic of yoga that makes it oh, so the helpful? The magic of your relationship to your body. The body does keep the score. Your body gives you these reactions. And so when you are traumatized, you try not to feel those things. And you say, oh, don't be stupid. I'm going to go to school. and. Uh, go to sit for his TV program. And and so people don't suppress this and they learn not to feel those sensations. And that's also very much at the basis of people getting hooked on drugs and uh, substances because they cannot stand the way their body feels. Uh, so that is how people get, get into drugs and excessive alcohol, basically. And at some point, you need to come to terms with your body and get to feel your body. And so yoga can also really be quite stressful for people. It can be bring up a lot of feelings, a lot of emotions, a lot of resistances. And for me, um, Stephen Cope's book, Yoga and the Quest for a True Self, really opened up my heart and my mind and my brain to, oh, when you learn to really inhabit the body that you live in and come to peace with it, uh, that's really sort of at the very foundation of who you are. And that's also uh, the, the book that we're almost finished with right now. It's called Come to Your Senses. Uh, you, it's about your sensory experience of yourself, basically. Great idea. Um, because I think if you took my example, all right, The Simpsons makes my stomach do a flip-flop, my heart races, my eyes start to water. I can shut that off because I don't have to watch that show. But for somebody who experiences trauma and you feel like that when you're in the grocery store or yep. when you're out doing something, I mean, it's fairly miserable. So I get yep. it why people would reach for these unhealthy coping strategies because you feel like you're desperate to make it stop. It feels terrible. Yeah, I wouldn't even use the word unhealthy there. Mm -hmm. Everybody's doing it. You know, like Right. The, the CBT thing, oh, that's bad. <laughs> I said, right. oh, oh, you smoke dope after you go to the store. Oh, that's interesting. 
What's that about? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I guess, so speaking of drugs and alcohol, you talk a little bit about um, prescribed medication. There is not one single medication that treats symptoms of PTSD, but sometimes medication can be helpful. Yeah, I, I, I used to be this first chief resident of psychopharmacology at Harvard at some point, but my interest in the drug trade has sort of vanished. I think psychiatry became a very sad profession when it became a bunch of drug pushers. Because drugs generally are not all that helpful. They can be quite helpful. I'm not against it. I still have a prescription blank in my office, but um, uh, that's not the answer. It's really about becoming aware of yourself and learning to live in the body that you live in. And you talk a little bit about psychedelics, though. What do you think about psychedelics in the treatment? Well, I, my, I run a lab uh, uh, that does psychedelic therapy. Right? So it's my main scientific interest these days is to see what MDMA can do. I run ketamine groups also. And I think that psychedelics are very promising, very troublesome, because I think uh, capitalism is going to uh, take over and make it all about profits and make money instead of really focusing on how it can change people's minds. Uh, but psychedelics have enormous potential if you don't mess it up. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. One of the things that was really surprised in your book is you talk about theater as a way to help people move through trauma. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Again, for me, that's not surprising. Like, you know, people have always dealt with theater to experience what it's like to be somebody else to have an alternative experience. And theater is a wonderful way of, does many things, but for one thing, you get to play a role and embody a role that's different from who you are. Uh, so um, let's say your, I think your Simpson example is, is a great example because it's for nice and neutral. And like, <laughs> so you come into the theater group and uh, you get assigned the role of somebody who is not afraid of the Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> and you say, that's not me. I'm really terrified of the Simpsons. But when I put one of the <laughs> costume and I wear that hat and I put a sword in my hand, uh, I play somebody who's not afraid of the Simpsons. Oh, that's what it feels like to be somebody other than my usual self. Huh? And so actually, in some ways, theater does what psychedelics also do. Uh, we're all trapped in a very narrow reality that we live in. Uh, uh, we're all very, very limited people. And then when you take psychedelics, you see that the world is much larger than who you are, which can be a very liberating and can be a very terrifying experience, of course. Uh, and the theater also, you get to embody what it feels to be somebody else. And not only that, but you become a part of a group of people who count on each other, who need each other. So it's highly interactive. And trauma is always always, always, maybe almost always, um, about being isolated, being God-forsaken, being disconnected from people around you. Uh, your, your fear of going to school was your very lonely experience, not like, oh, all the kids in my neighborhood were afraid to go to school. No, it's just me and I messed up, there's something wrong with me. Uh, and so then in the theater, you all work on these things. You get to really feel your humanity with the other people in your group. Yeah, I can't tell you how many people we've had who are actors on our show. And they've said something kind of like that. Like when I get to play somebody else, I get to forget about certain things, right? It empowers me to feel differently. So 
not just forgetting, it's really embodying different realities. Uh, for example, um, uh, uh, in our program that I'm very connected with, uh, people learn sword fighting. <laughs> people learn how to slap each other. And it looks like it's real slap, like, wow, I can really be, look very aggressive, very powerful, because on stage I can do these techniques that make me feel like I'm a very powerful person. Yeah. Would we get the same benefits if it were something with virtual realities and avatars and video games sort of a thing? Yeah, I'm a little, I, I, I'm, I'm a little worried about all that. Uh, because, uh, you know, I told you, I just came back from Serengeti, and I got to see all these animals again, and they live in troops. And we live in troops also as human beings. And uh, for this to become more and more disembodied and more and more screen-like, I think it's probably not good, back for, good for our souls. So I'm very worried about people getting the same dopamine kick out of virtual reality, but we really not knowing how it is to, to have a very complex relationship of going out for dinner together or cooking together or raising babies together and all this sort of stuff, which is really, it's a personal process. And I say, so I think we are in the state right now where we can get almost all the rewards of being with real people in a virtual way, but it will really, I think it's going to be very damaging for a relationship with each other. Mm, okay. I'm worried about it. Yeah, yeah, I share the same concern because we know social support is a huge factor. And yeah, social support. We are mammals. <laughs> we are mammals live in groups. That's what we have brains for. It's not social support. It's like hey, I need to cook at some point. I need to go and get groceries. I need to go shovel snow. Like, and we need to divvy up our tasks together. And, and so we are living in tribes, in groups, and configurations of us and other people. Uh, uh, that's who we are. And you also talk about the importance sometimes of taking action. So if after a natural disaster, people are working on cleaning up and they're helping out each other, that that reduces the impact that the trauma might have on them? Yeah. So again, we are bodies and our bodies are meant to take action. And so again, virtual reality keeps your body out of the action. Uh, you can call up local store to make food for you and you don't know how to make food anymore because your virtual reality takes care of that. But you lose that capacity to, I have created something very beautiful here by the meal that we're having or next time I'll do it a little bit better. And that we are experiential animals and we can either have virtual, virtual experiences or we can have real experiences. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. You talk about other things too with the arts, like um, music or or doing art therapy. That those things can help heal us too. Well, uh, again, no, we are we are interactive creatures, and we are again hang out with babies, hang out with animals. And we are we meant to interact with each other. When I say something and I see your face, your face moves in response to me. That we have mirror neurons that. That with which we respond to each other. The source of joy for human beings primarily is to do things together. Uh, even you and I doing a podcast together is in some ways gratifying if we get on together. And if you keep asking all the wrong questions, I give all the wrong answers. And then we say, boy, it really sucked because we're out of sync with each other. 
Uh, yeah. So being in sync is what life is all about. Uh, and so uh, who should we take our cues from? From nursery school teachers. They still know that. Uh, you play with kids. You do things together. You interact. You build towers together with other people. That's who we are. Uh, and now our culture, uh, America sort of almost uniquely has evolved to believe that people are individuals. But anywhere else in the world, people don't experience themselves primarily as individuals. Everybody else identifies themselves as part of a larger group. Yeah? And that's, who, that's our nature. And so everything that's really pleasurable from playing volleyball to cooking together to making love is all about getting in sync together, right? getting bodies to work together to make things happen. And so I yeah. go to music therapy. I said, yeah, that's how you professionalize it. You get a license. But now who are we as human beings is we are rhythmical individuals. Like, and that I thought was one of the most amazing parts of your book is you don't really tell people like, yeah, go to sign up for art therapy. But you say if you go do do artistic things in groups of people and it's something that you enjoy, that can be quite healing. It doesn't have to be quote unquote therapy. It, it very lives as a lot of painters. And once a week they all go and they paint together at the same spot and compare his pictures with each other. I happen not to be a painter, but they thought, boy, that's really cool to just sit there and go to a nice mountain, a nice stream. And and all do your stuff in connection with other people. That's that's the joy of living. Yeah, right. I wouldn't call it art therapy. I'd call it the joy of living. <laughs> right. And but you know, it's so many people I think lose sight of that. Right. We get so busy working, so busy doing all the things we feel like we have to do that people feel guilty sometimes going to do those things that are the joy of living. Well, it sounds like you're being on a yacht in Key West has helped you to overcome this. Yeah. <laughs> One of the other things you talk about in your book that is really effective is EMDR. And we just yeah. had the authors of the book, Every Memory Deserves Respect, where they talk oh, about then, EMDR treatment. Yeah. And okay. yeah, and I I'm, was thrilled to be able to introduce that to our audience because I think a lot of people haven't heard about it, but you found that it's quite effective for people overcoming trauma. So for me, EMDR was really my opening into the world of therapy. I already had written three books about trauma. I was a famous person in the area of trauma. I didn't have a clue how to treat it. And EMDR was really the first thing that opened up my mind. It's a very silly treatment. I imagine that Debbie wasn't disparaging of it herself. She, uh, she's less, uh, she's a less um, irreverent person than I am. Uh, but it's a very <laughs> crazy treatment. And it worked. And so that really opened up my mind. So, uh, so crazy things may work. And then the whole world goes back to like what you do in cognitive behavioral treatment to understand and reason yourself out of things like, no, that's not how we work. But EMDR, so I did the first and only NIMH uh, funded study on, on uh, EMDR. And it turned out to be an extraordinarily effective treatment. And that's actually quite a long time ago that we did that study. Uh, and it's sad to me that EMDR has not gotten more of a traction because it's really a spectacularly useful treatment. Yeah, we've seen, you know, it takes a long time to adopt things, to accept them, to make them more widely acceptable or accessible for people. And, yeah. right, so many things, I think, that we're slow to adopt. And as you say, things that look maybe a little wacky on the outside, like, 
are actually quite more effective than the things yeah, that... Know, things come and go. For example, hypnosis is a very, has always been the best treatment for PTSD until 1990, when it suddenly became an evil treatment and people stopped doing it. And that's very sad because there are very good treatments that are there and are available and they get ignored. Uh, and so uh, it's very important. And that's part of why I wrote my book is to really, uh, it's very much a caveat emptor book. Or like be careful with uh, the prevailing cultural paradigms right now because these are the fundamental things that you need. And, you know, depending on your insurance company and your American Psychological Association, they go to tell you what to do, but don't believe what the authorities tell you what to do. You need to really figure it out for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And what are, you, what are your thoughts on mindfulness and meditation? Well, mindfulness, you cannot have a mind without being mindful. Like, like duh. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, big deal. Mindfulness. Yeah. Yeah, actually, yeah. People have done, done mindfulness since time immemorial, but suddenly somebody says, oh, I've invented mindfulness. Like, right. Right, because now it's kind of a buzzword for workplaces and people that are doing sales work and that sort of a thing. And I hear people say that, like, oh, this new thing, as if it is new. What's new about it? Like, like, right. You know, people have always gone inside and always meditated and always prayed and always uh, gone to monasteries and always gone to long, on long walks. Uh, people need to have time to be by them, with themselves and by themselves to really explore who this creature I is. And then another thing you talked about in your book was neural feedback. Can you explain a little yeah. bit about what that is and how that works? Well, neural feedback actually is, I, I'm saddest about neural feedback because it's such an effective treatment and it should be in every school, in every place in America because neural feedback is a way in which you can uh, you put electrodes on people's skulls, uh, you can project people's brain waves on a screen and then you can play computer games with your own brain waves to reward your brain to make certain sorts of connections and, and waveforms that helps you to be calm and focused. And so it's really a beautiful way of training the brain. I've done a fair amount of research in it. I, we still are actively train people in it these days, uh, but it is not getting the sort of traction that I wish it would actually. Yeah. 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 Okay. And you make it clear too, though, that there's not just one way for somebody to heal. So if somebody says, gosh, I'm struggling with something, where do I start or what do I try first? What would you recommend to them? I would go to your best put together friend and say, what has helped you? Oh, great idea. Okay. And say, so it's always what's available. You know, so my book writes about many different uh, treatment techniques. You know, I've been about, I've done this work for about 50 years. Those are the treatments that I've had access to and have been able to study. It doesn't mean that those are the only treatments or the best treatments. That's something that one guy has been able to accumulate over time. But in some ways, everybody who I know who has been traumatized, who has found their way out, have discovered a number of different things that they found was helpful for them. And oftentimes, EMDR happens to be a useful part of it. And uh, working with your body uh, almost invariably is an important part of it. Uh, oftentimes, body work for many people is an important part of it. Uh, opening yourself up to 
the pleasure and the comfort of touch after you have been molested is a huge issue. You cannot reason yourself out of it. You need to really work with your body, have, uh, work with making yourself open to your body. And so, so it's always an exploration. And so there are certain forms of treatment that I like a lot, but when you live in Kansas City, you may not have access to that. And so it depends very much on what's around in your community and who are the people in your world who are uh, who people trust and uh, feel good about. And those are not the people who are necessarily endorsed by the American Psychiatric or the American Psychological Association. Yeah, I'm glad that you said all that because we don't all have access to the same treatment, the same services, and what works for somebody may not necessarily be the thing that works for everybody. That's right. So it takes, it takes a lot of courage, actually, to go the treatment road, huh? to say there is something that I need to work on. And you always start with a sense of shame. How does something wrong with me? And I don't want anybody to know about it. And so to actually open yourself up and be able to tell somebody what is bothering you is a major act of courage. Also, also very important for uh, the receiver, the therapist, to be open. It's a sacramental work. And if you start getting judgmental and telling people that something is, how can you be so screwed up to think that way? Of course, it's a terrible thing to do. Uh, so finding somebody who is wise is very important. And I'd say anybody who says, I have the best treatment there is, avoid those people. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And I love the idea of just asking somebody you know and somebody that you trust of what helped them and to say, can I try that service too? Dr. Vanderkolk, thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom with us today on the Very Well Mind podcast. Good luck to you. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is a part of the show where I'll break down Dr. Vanderkolk's strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three strategies that I highly recommend. Number one, try yoga. You've probably heard lots of people say that yoga is good for you. Maybe they were vague on the reason or they gave you some kind of generic answer about how it's good for your mind and your body. So I love that Dr. Vanderkolk shares how yoga can specifically help people heal from trauma. His book goes into more detail about how yoga can help you heal and how it can release the trauma that's stored in your body. He acknowledges it can be hard, but he might also show you that it's worthwhile to try. I know a lot of people who say, yoga's not for me, because they've only tried it once or twice or maybe never at all. But practicing yoga on a regular basis gets easier, and it might also relieve symptoms of PTSD. Number two, try EMDR. We've talked about EMDR on the show before. If you're interested in learning more about it, and you haven't yet listened to episode 224, check it out. Therapist Deborah Korn and Michael Baldwin, who's someone who benefited from EMDR, co-wrote a book about it, and they explain how it works on that episode. Essentially, it's a type of treatment that involves tapping or eye movement that changes the way that memories are stored in your brain. On the surface, it kind of sounds a little too good to be true, but it actually works. And Dr. Vanderkolk's research affirmed this. So if you're interested in working through trauma and you're open to trying EMDR, look for a therapist who's trained in it. And number three, ask someone else what helped them. I love that Dr. Vanderkolk suggested to ask someone that you know what helped them deal with a traumatic experience. Sometimes the best ideas come from friends or family or people that we know who've been through something similar. 
sometimes the things that help people are similar. At other times, they're somewhat outside the box. So whether you have a friend who said, you know, I started swimming at the Y every day and now I feel better, or you have a family member who says, I got an app that taught me how to meditate, you might need to do a little trial and error to figure out what's going to work well for you. But the things that work for other people just might work for you too. So don't give up. Keep looking for things that might work for you. Anything from lifting weights to joining community theater might help. So those are three of Dr. Vanderkolk's strategies that you might want to try in your own life. Yoga, EMDR, and asking someone close to you what worked for them. To learn more of Dr. Vanderkolk's strategies, pick up a copy of his book, The Body Keeps the Score. It's filled with research, stories from his practice, and actionable tips. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.